Father of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Many have been asking me what I was going to preach after I finished Leviticus. Well, this is it. It's Hebrews, now we know. Um, And I chose Hebrews first, of course, because it's in the Bible. Very good. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're catching on to my schemes here. It's in the Bible. So I assume if I stick fairly close to it, it won't, uh, won't do you any harm. But secondly, as to we finish Leviticus, there was a, a great sense of, 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 of uh, the, how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. Um, that shouldn't have surprised us, didn't surprise us, because we know the scripture is God breathed, so it's coming from him. So there should be tremendous continuity here. We understood St. Augustine's expression that the New Testament is in the Old concealed and the Old Testament is in, is in the New Testament revealed. So the two of them fit uh, nicely together. But as we come to Hebrews... Uh, that fact of fitting is certainly reiterated, but, but now with a, a twist, and that is that the New Testament so fulfills the Old that the author of Hebrews can speak of it like this in chapter 8 and verse 13. He writes, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so now he's saying to us that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, in some sense, because of the New, has been made obsolete. Now that doesn't mean that it was of no value to the people in its day, that is, it was of no value to people prior to the coming of Christ, because it was of great value. It was the very Word of God, and it was the way through which God gave grace to people, that they came to Him through this system of a nation of Israel and temple and priests and sacrifices. So it was of great value to them. And that isn't to say that it's of no value to us now because it doesn't form how we understand the New Testament. That was the great value of working our way through Leviticus and other Old Testament books and passages that we've gone through over the years to to inform our understanding of the New. But there's a sense in which the Old Testament standing alone is incomplete. One author put it like this. He said... The old order is intrinsically incomplete. It has a self-confessed inadequacy. The Old Testament is an unfinished story. It cannot be made to stand on its own legs. It remains valid in itself as indispensable preparation. But as Jeremiah saw, something new was needed. That's why the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah kept pointing to a new covenant that was to come because the old in and of itself was incomplete. It wasn't finished. There was something to which it pointed that it needed to find satisfaction, to find completion in it. Thus, when Jesus came on the scene, you remember, right before his crucifixion at that table, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so, yes, the old covenant is the word of God. Yes, it was the means of grace for those in the old covenant, but now the new has come to fulfill. And so much has it fulfilled that the author of Hebrews, and I'll refer to him that way because we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so in my notes it's just A-H for author of Hebrews. Um, So much 
has the new fulfilled the old, that he can use this language to say that the old is in that sense obsolete, we could say finished, fulfilled, or obsolete. There's a sense in which, as, he's, as we've traditionally addressed this letter to the Hebrews, this sense that it's going to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, to tell them something about how the old and the new is now related, and how Christ has fulfilled the old, that he's so superior to everything in the old covenant that now they must, too, look to Jesus. It certainly doesn't mean that it's not helpful for Gentiles, because it is. It's helpful for all believers. For Jewish Christians, it would be helpful to be able to say, don't feel odd or don't feel guilty when you leave behind worship at the temple, when you leave behind these sacrifices, when you leave behind going to the priest. Don't feel guilty, don't feel odd when you do that. That's precisely how all this was aimed. Now that Christ has come, that's unnecessary. And not only unnecessary, but in some years after the book of Hebrews was written, it would be impossible because the temple would be destroyed. So don't think that your soul now is diminished because there's no temple, because Christ has fulfilled all that. That is, in that sense, obsolete. The temple, the sacrifices, the priests, it's been all captured in Christ. Trust Him. You're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He now is your high priest. He has been made your sacrifice. You don't need that. And for Gentile believers as well, it's important to know that there are no second-class citizens in the body of Christ. That it was a great blessing to be an ethnic child of Abraham, but it's no deterrent to knowing God. Because it's all been fulfilled in Christ. And now we all come through Him regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of national origin, regardless of anything distinctively human about us. We come, all of us, now to God in Christ. He is the fulfillment of it all. But, but there's more to it than just this academic exercise of Old Testament, New Testament, how they're related to each other. Because as we come to this book, we find a tremendous urgency, a tremendous seriousness. Let me read some to you. Chapter 2 and verse 1. We read this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's saying, listen, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Whatever else, don't miss this great salvation. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's saying, don't be like that. He goes on, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort to one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, you get this sense of great urgency, great seriousness. He's saying, listen, whatever else, don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that the old is fulfilled in the new. Don't miss the fact that Christ has come. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you 
should seem to have failed to reach it. He said, don't miss it. Don't fail to reach it. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Don't be disobedient and miss it. Chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and all and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. He's saying, be careful. Don't miss it. Then verse 11 in that same chapter, and we desire to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the, the promises. That is, don't be sluggish in the midst of this. Something has happened that's, that's bigger than anything we could ever imagine. So don't, don't miss that which has happened. And then, in chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 10 and verse 26. He writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, the author of Hebrews is saying, Watch out, be careful, don't miss it. Then in chapter 12, in verse 25, he writes, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, we get the sense that this isn't some academic exercise, just something to, 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 to further clarify the relationship between the old covenant and the new, but because of the way that they're related, because of history, because of the events that God has brought into play, because of Jesus, then everything is different. And we mustn't miss it. And so the author of Hebrews begins like this. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke. We mustn't miss it when God speaks. It's rather amazing that God would speak. It's rather amazing that God would come and, and would communicate anything to us. The scripture says that God communicates to us first and foremost by creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. There's a sense in which that we ought to be able to look at the earth and look at creation and say, there is a God. I know God exists and he's powerful and he's wise. In fact, Romans 1 the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 1, verse 20, verse 19. He says, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That is, in the things that have been made, God has communicated to us His great wisdom and His power. But, but we have a tendency to miss that. One, we just sort of take it for granted after a while. I remember when I was working prior to coming here, Karen and I lived in Denver, and the church there, um, if you walked out one set of doors, you'd be looking under the foothills. It was just an awesome sight. And I remember going out of church after I'd been there about a week, and I turned to one of the elders that was walking out with me, and I said, do you ever get used to that? And he said, what? And the answer, of course, is yes, you get used to it. You stop looking at the mountains. After a while, you look at bumpers, you know? You look at people and you look at what's around you, grocery store aisles. You, you miss the very fact that there was, there's a being such that he could simply say mountains and they would be. It's an amazing thing, but we, we miss it. And, and in the midst of the creation, we see a certain measure of, of ambiguity, I suppose. We see the great creation, but yet on the other hand, we see earthquakes happen and tornadoes and hurricanes and things which seem quite harmful. In fact, the great 17th century philosopher, physicist, mathematician, they multitasked in those days, um, Pascal put it like this. He said, I look on all sides and everywhere I see nothing but obscurity. If I saw no signs of a divinity, I would fix myself in denial. If I saw everywhere the marks of a creator, I would repose in faith. But seeing too much to deny him and too little to assure me, I'm in a pitiful state, and I would wish a hundred times that if God sustains nature, it would reveal him without ambiguity. And so there's a sense in which Pascal and the rest of us are saying, God, could you speak to me different? Could you speak more clearly? And he could say, no, I don't need to. This is sufficient. But he does condescend to speak even more clearly. Pascal would come to know that. We've come to know that. This passage says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What a wonderful thing that he would speak such. And it says that God was rather gregarious to the prophets. It was in many times and many ways. In fact, we have the whole Old Testament to, to, to give us evidence of that. That he, he spoke in many ways through visions. Uh, Isaiah saw a great vision of God high and lifted up. Um, in various enactments, Hosea's whole life was a prophetic word from God. In, in, in his voice, he spoke audibly, the still small voice in Elijah, the, the bit of a louder voice on Mount Sinai to Moses and all the people. He spoke to them, and he made covenant with them, and he explained himself over and over and over again. And the message was very consistent. consistent. The message was, I am the Lord your God. And I'm not simply speaking to you in order to give you commands so that you'll jump I'm speaking to you so that you'll know me. And, and, and my, my command to you, my communication to you is this. If you love me, believe in me, follow me, obey me, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed and cut off. Which is see, God speaks to us. Again, not simply so that he can command us what to do, that he, but he speaks to us that we might, in fact, know him. For instance, in Jeremiah in chapter 9, Verse 23, Jeremiah puts it uh, like this. He says, thus says the Lord. We sing this from time to time, by the way. 
I don't know what you do, but when I'm reading through the Bible in a year, when I find passages that we sing, I just put little musical notes by them just to remind me that we sing that. And sometimes I just sing it. I won't sing it. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, listen, I want you to know me, to understand me, to know my heart, to know my character, to know that I practice steadfast love and mercy and justice. That's who I am. If you want to be, if you want to be boastful, if you want to be happy about anything, it should be that, that you, that you know me. The reason God communicates to us is that we might know him. In Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 31, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says, there's a day coming when you'll know me, that my very character, my very law will be upon your heart. And the way the Lord Jesus puts it is like this in John in chapter 17. As he's praying right before the crucifixion. Verse 3. One sentence And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. You see, God desires for us to know him. For us to know him, he must speak to us, reveal himself to us. Because how else would we really come to know God, lest he reveals himself to us? That's the great struggle, you see, of of religionists, of religion. Uh, When we study religion in college, what we're studying generally is what do people think about God? How do various societies, how how do we think about God? And the problem with that is once you have a thought about God, how do you know that it's right? You ask another person. The only way that we can really know God, the only way the infinite can be known by the finite, is for him to reveal. And so he does, he speaks, he speaks to us by way of the prophets, so that we might come to know him. Is that amazing? I don't know where I got this line. I think it must be from J.I. Packer. It goes like this, that knowing God is a pursuit that's designed to thrill the soul. Knowing God is a pursuit designed to thrill the soul. You see, God is calling us to himself to know him, that we might be thrilled, that we might be satisfied, that we might be captivated by, uh, by knowing him of all we could know, but to know God. And so that's the question. That's the question I grappled with some this week just as I was praying. That I raised with you at the offering time. How would my life be different if I knew God better? If I knew him deeper? If I were more mature in him? If I I really knew him? I've been able to think back in the context of my life in the past and realize how much things have changed as I've grown in my knowledge of him and and come to know him better. Uh, And and you too. And, And not just simply knowing stuff about God, not having more information about God, being able to pass a multiple choice test about God, but rather knowing him, knowing that he's had dealings in your own life. 
And you're able to recognize, that's God. I think, how would my life be different? I wrote this, I wrote first. How would knowing God better affect how I weigh success and failure? How would it affect how I understand that which is external versus internal, temporal versus eternal? How would my priorities change, my values, if I knew God better? How would the counsel that I give others change? Or the choices that I make, what I purchase or not, how I spend my time, how I would choose, uh, what I would choose to say and to whom I would choose to say it? Or my prayers, how would they change? I've been able to look back over the course of my life and chart them a bit and see how my prayers have changed. In some sense, I ask for less stuff. In terms of stuff, stuff. The priorities have changed. Or my reaction, how would it change if I knew God better? My reaction to receiving bad news. Or my reaction to receiving good news. How would that change if I knew God better? How would that balance? How would that balance itself out? How would my worship change? Even this morning, if you wondered, God broke through in a way that's different, that's new. That's how would your worship be different? So God calls us, uh, you see, to know Him. Uh, he does speak to us. He speaks to us obviously in the context of creation. He speaks to us, has spoken to us through the prophets. But now, the whole point of this book, which we'll be undertaking for however long it takes, <laughs> dare I say, my wife is taking uh, uh, dates upon how long this will take. So if you want to enter the pool, you can do that. I think that's... But the good news is that he's spoken to us, it says, in his son. Notice, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And you have to understand that the change between verse 1 and verse 2 is like falling off a cliff. It's like moving to two separate pages. It's cataclysmic. God is saying, on the one hand, he spoke through prophets, but now in these last days, and by last days he means right now, that is the days since the ascension of Jesus. People ask me from time to time when I think the last days are, which of course is a silly question, it's an irrelevant question, because it really doesn't matter when I think the last days are. I don't have any control over that, I want you to know that. <laughs> There's no illusions here about my place and the whole kingdom of God thing, but it doesn't have anything to do with that, but... The truth of the matter is the last days have begun. The last days began when Jesus came, lived, died, was resurrected and ascended. You remember in Acts chapter 2 as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit has come and people are wondering what's happened and Peter's about to give them a description of what's happened. He quotes Joel and he says in the last days, this is what you'll see. These are the last days. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, now the last days have come. Those were the former days. These are the last days. There's a huge difference between the two. That was former. This is last. The end is on its way. The end is, in some sense, as good as here. In the last days, he's spoken to us. Now, my version has spoken to us by his son. Some versions may have spoken to us by the son. Some versions may have spoken 
uh, to us by a son. Really, that's just English. Uh, his, a, the is not in the original Greek. It's just simply spoken to us by son. And the, the drama there is, is, that, is that son is so different than prophet. Prophet's good, but son is like in a whole different category. Almost to where they can't be compared because the prophet spoke what he heard. The son speaks of who he is. The prophet can only say what he's learned. The son speaks of what he knows because he is. There's a world of difference. There's a heaven of difference between prophet and son. So much so that the author of Hebrews says, listen, whatever else, you must pay attention to son. If you didn't pay attention to prophet, that's not good. But you must now pay attention to the son. You know how in the old King James Version, John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We don't use that expression, begotten, uh, very often. If you read the King James Version and you read about all the ones being born and, and, uh, and numbered in various parts of the Pentateuch, uh, it gets a little boring. It says so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and all of that. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 5 of Hebrews, there'll be an expression about Jesus being begotten in a little different context. But it's important to understand that word. In fact, one of our ancient creeds, the Nicene Creed, picks it up like this and says of Jesus that he is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. There's a difference between begotten and created. There's a difference between begotten and made. Begetting begets the same. Creation creates different. When God creates, he made us. We're not God. When God creates, he makes trees. Not God. When God begets, God comes. Human beings beget human beings. Karen and I, our children, are begotten of us because they're like us. They're humans and they're short. <laughs> right? They're like us. Dogs beget dogs. But a human being creates a table, something different. He makes a table. He builds a house, something different. And so... In theology, when we talk about, and in Scripture, when we talk about Jesus being the begotten Son of God, it means He's of the same stuff as God. He's of the same substance of God. He's God. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, you must listen to Him. He's the one. He's the one speaking. In fact, it says, in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. And, and, and that means that His Son isn't simply a, one of the prophets in succession. But no, He's very different. He's Son. He's going to speak because He's of the same substance of the Father. Not speaking of what He's heard, but speaking of what He knows because He is. And so, whatever else, you must Listen to him. That's why we say Christianity is Christ. That's why we're so hung up on Jesus. That's why when we talk to people about faith, we can't not talk about Jesus because he is the definitive final word of, from God. Because he is. There's no Christianity without Christ. 
You can take Muhammad out of Islam and still have some teaching. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism and still have the teaching. But you can't take Jesus out of Christianity because if you do, you haven't got it. Because he is son. The definitive last word. There's no other word to be spoken about God other than besides him. And so if we don't see it in him, we don't see it. That's the urgency here. That's the urgency of the book of Hebrews. As we run through this, the urgency is going to be continually over and over again. Look at God this way, but that's inferior to Jesus. Look at him. Look at God here, but that's inferior to who he is. Look at Jesus. Don't miss him. Don't miss that. In fact, he goes on here now to describe what he means. Verse 2, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's saying, listen, everything belongs to him. Why would you listen? Why would you follow anyone, any other thing other than Jesus? He's the creator of all that is. He's the one who defines life as creator. That's why John, when he writes his gospel in chapter 1, then speak of Jesus like this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in Him was life. He's the very creator of all that is. It shouldn't surprise us that John would pick that word word for Jesus, given the fact that in Genesis 1, all of creation came about by the very Word. Of God. And you get this sense that Jesus is the very expression of God. He's the very communication of God. He's the one who makes God known to us. He's the very word of God. He's the creator of all that is. You get this sense that when God speaks, Jesus comes out. When he wants to reveal something about himself, Jesus is shown and manifested. He's the very expression of the heart, mind, substance of God to us. And so the author of Hebrews says, why would you listen to anyone else? Why don't you go to the one who made it all and defines life? Not only that, he says he's the heir of all things. Now it's always amazing to me that when we try to define or try to describe God in human language, it fails some. Because what the author of Hebrews is trying to get to when he talks about Jesus being the heir of all things, the son is the heir of all things, he isn't speaking explicitly about the way that we think of an heir. We think of an heir being one who gets stuff when somebody else dies. And it isn't like Jesus has to wait for the father to die in order for him to, to, to receive his inheritance because his father is eternal. I mean, that would be the worst of all possible tricks. Good news, bad news. Good news, you, you're, you know, you're heir to a million dollars. Bad news, your father's eternal. Um, you know? And so so it, isn't, it isn't that. It's the fact that all that's the father's is his. And not only that, since he was appointed heir, and since he's creator, you get the sense that this heirship is somehow a nuance better than being creator because it's something that he receives because of who he is and what he's, in a sense, done. And what he's done is redeemed. And so his inheritance is all that the Father gives him because he's the Redeemer. Track this with me in Scripture, Psalm chapter 2, very quickly. 
Psalm number 2. In verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your heritage or your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You get the sense, again, this is poetry, but you get the sense of father-son communicating, and the father saying, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. The nations will be yours. Turn to John in chapter 6. In verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Notice this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The inheritance of Jesus. All that the Father gives him. And how does he receive it? By way of redeeming. Turn to John chapter 17 again. Again, this prayer of Jesus. A very intimate moment between Father and soon to be crucified son verse 1 when Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you notice verse 2 since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him his very inheritance and who is his inheritance the very ones the father has given him and who are they the very ones for whom he'll die and who are they the very ones who will believe and who are they the very ones who will have eternal life he goes on verse 4 I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before that I had with you before the world existed I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave, who have given me, you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, the very inheritance of Jesus. And then, the call to worship that I read this morning from Revelation in chapter 5 and verse 9. This is a picture of Jesus in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, the very inheritance of Jesus what is His is that which He's redeemed us and a whole new earth. One author puts it like this, a guy by the name of Philip Hughes, he writes, The airship of Christ 
then is established within the perspective of redemption. His inheritance is the innumerable company of the redeemed and the universe renewed by virtue of his triumphant work of reconciliation. That belongs to Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews would say, if that's true, then why not be part of this inheritance? Why listen to anyone else? Why go anywhere else? Why not listen to Jesus and believe in him? Because you see, he is the heir of all things, the creator of all that is. And he also says of this, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That can simply be summarized by Jesus' own words when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And by that, Jesus didn't mean that God was 57160. But he meant, I'm the radiance of his glory. I'm the very manifestation of God. When you see me, when you listen to me, when you hear me, when you know me, you're hearing and listening and knowing the very heart of God. I'm the exact imprint of his nature. My very stuff is his very stuff. My very substance is his very substance. And so if you could take my, my heart, he could say, and you could rub it on a piece of paper, the impression that would be left would be God. I mean, that, that, that's how much it is. My very substance is, is God himself. So if you know me, then you know him. So the author of Hebrews would say, don't pass this by. Don't miss this. Don't, don't miss the fact that the Christ has come. Don't miss the fact that the Messiah is here. Don't miss the fact that the very one that, ever, that everything has been pointing through in all of history and everything that we'll point back to from all of history is Jesus. Don't miss it. And then he goes on to say this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is, if Jesus ever stopped being the word, if Jesus ever stopped speaking, everything would fall apart. The philosopher said, I think, therefore I am. Which, of course, is wrong. Christ thinks, therefore I am. If he stops, I'm not. Or you could say, I think, therefore, Christ is. Because if he isn't, I'm not. He upholds everything, us even, by the very word of his power. The author of Hebrews said, why would you go to anyone else? Why not go to the very one who holds everything, who sustains everything, who is? And then he says, after making purification for sins, that's the gospel right there. He made purification for sins. That he gave himself that our sins might be forgiven. Our hearts, our lives, our souls might be cleansed. That's why he died. And he says he's done that. The author of Hebrews saying, why go to someone who simply talks about purification from sins? Why not go to the one who actually did it? He's the very one who made it. Why would you go to someone else? The prophets pointed to it, and that was great. That's all we had. But now that he has come, why look back to them? Why look to anyone else? The final word about God, the final word of God has come, and it's come in Jesus. So don't go to anyone who simply talks about it. You talk much with people about purification from sins. Some are trying to live in such a way that they don't sin. Most of us are already beyond that. It's not an option any longer. But then we think, well, maybe God doesn't really care, but Jesus came to show that he does. And maybe God doesn't exist, but Jesus came and showed that he does. And maybe there really isn't justice, but Jesus came and showed that it really is. And so how is it that we're going to have purification from sins? And the author of Hebrews says, don't miss him. He's come. And then he says, after making purification for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that is, it's all done. He sits. He sits and he rests. 
right there and he rules and reigns from that very spot and the author of Hebrews would say why would you trust why would you go why would you listen to anyone else other than the one who sits on high and rules and reigns over everything he can bring it every promise that he's made he can fulfill because he is the king there was a time in the life of Jesus that he got three of his disciples Peter, James and John they went up to this little mountain And when they did, Peter, James, and John saw something they had never seen before, even though they had been walking with Jesus. Because at that moment in time, the scripture says that Jesus was transfigured. And all of a sudden, they really saw the radiance of the glory of God right there. And a voice came and said, This is my son. Listen to him. Different than prophet, this is son. He's me. He's mine. He knows he is. Listen to him. Jesus told a parable about a man who had a vineyard. He leased it out to some tenants. They owed him some rent. And so he sent some servants to get the rent from them. And they killed those servants. And the owner said, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. They killed him. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like that. Because the truth is this, that to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, they are the very ones who have the right to become children of God. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we wouldn't miss it. That the focus of our attention would be upon Christ. That we would rest our whole eternity in him I pray in these months that you would cause this piece of scripture to arrest us that we might know the urgency and the seriousness of following hard after Christ and that you would enable us to do that that we would listen to him that his voice would drown out all others, and that we would become tuned to his, and that we would know him, and as we know him, this definitive word of God, that we would know you, and it would thrill our souls. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that... uh, got a Wednesday night supper this week and pancake feed on Saturday and so forth. Please remember those things. But also this, that the response to the benediction is, I will listen to Jesus, meaning I will follow him. I will listen to Jesus. Amen. That his voice would drown out all the others, that he is the one who would define for you God and communicate God to you. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I will listen to Jesus.